Let's pray this morning as uh, we go to the Word of God. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to study your Word together. Uh, it is an amazing, amazing revelation you've given of yourself to us. And it is not an easy read. We pray today that as we read some words that are almost difficult to accept, that our hearts would be willing. Through Jesus. Amen. Does anyone know who this guy is? A very bad man. No? He's a very Japanese man. His name was Hiro Onada, and Hiro Onada was a lieutenant in the Japanese army during World War II. And as part of the intelligence group that he was part of, he was sent to Lubang, Philippines, 90 miles southwest of the Philippine capital, Manila, toward the end of the war. Of course, they didn't know it was the end of the war. It was December 1944. Three months later, Allied troops landed on the island, and Japanese troops began surrendering but not Onada. He refused to give up, and with three other soldiers, they headed off into the jungles of the Philippines. His generation had been taught absolute loyalty to Japan and to its emperor, and he and other soldiers in the Imperial Army followed a code that said that death is preferred to surrender. So surrender wasn't even in the vocabulary. Well, of the four soldiers who went into the jungle to hide, one of them emerged in 1950, almost six years later, and two of them died. But Onada stayed on, and he struggled to keep himself alive. He had to steal rice and bananas from local villagers. He even shot some of their cows on occasion in order to make dried beef. And for 30 years, he stayed on the island hiding carrying out occasional guerrilla warfare following the last orders that he had been given. And this lasted until February 20th, 1974, when a young traveler named Norio Suzuki went to Lubang to, to find him. He knew he was there, knew he was missing. He, it had been reports, but he had to somehow persuade him to come back. So he went and he camped out in these little jungle um, openings and just waited and waited and waited. And finally, Onada came out curious and asked him what he was doing, and they began talking. And so he told him that the war had ended many years before, but Onada didn't believe him. And finally, the Japanese, in order to get him home, had to send his original commanding officer, Major Yoshima Taniguchi, to tell Onada, it's okay to surrender, the war is over. And so he did. The Philippine government pardoned him, and he went home to Japan with a hero's welcome. And although he had struggled to adapt to his new life, he never viewed his 30 years in the jungle as a waste of time. And so he has the distinction of being the last Japanese soldier from World War II to surrender. In fact, of any nation. <laughs> Everyone else is done. Done for 30 years. And he's still out there hiding, fighting a war that was over. He died just two years ago on January 16, 2014. Now, I brought him up this morning because I want to admit something to you, and I hope you can admit maybe the same thing. If I'm honest with myself, I must admit that I can easily relate to Onada because I don't much like to surrender either. 
Do you? You have that same problem? You know, I'm kind of strong-willed. I'm kind of resistant to God. And I, I don't like to surrender to other people. And I don't like to surrender even to God sometimes. And so, you know, the, the, the uh, bristling of your back and you're just like, no, I'm not going to do this because I think I know what's best. I think the right way to go. Or I just want to hang on to something I want to hold on to. And perhaps you're like that too. We don't like to surrender. But Jesus says that we must. Well, the Bible is filled with people who have the same problem. People slow to surrender. People slow to give up on their plans and, and do whatever God asks them to do. Moses had all kinds of excuses. Remember why he couldn't go back to Egypt and rescue God's people. Gideon was sure that God had selected the wrong person to defeat the Midianites. Jonah refused to go to, Je to, to Nineveh and to preach to his enemies. So he got a boat going the opposite direction. Esther, we read about this week, is afraid that the king would not welcome her and would, she would be punished by death. And I think we're a lot like these people before they surrendered to God. But did you ever know the rest of the story? Because all of them eventually did. All of them eventually said, you know, it's foolish to resist you, God. I'll do whatever you said. They all ended up doing what God asked them. And they surrendered. Look what happened. Uh, Moses freed almost two million Israelites from slavery after 400 years in Egypt. And Gideon defeated 120,000 Midianites with just 300 men on his team. And Jonah called the people of Nineveh to repentance. And the whole city, 120,000 people, were saved because of his preaching, almost instantaneously. And then God used Esther to save thousands upon thousands of her fellow Jews who were going to be hunted down. It's amazing. When we surrender, what happens? So here's a million dollar, dollar question this morning. This is the question I want to just have you kind of wrestle with this morning. Are we willing to follow their example and to surrender our lives to God also? Are we willing to obey Him completely so that He can take us wherever He wants us to go to do whatever He wants us to do? This week in chapter 15, we read Esther's amazing story. We read about Peter and John. We also read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, didn't we? I love that story. I've always been captivated by this story of these, these three young men. I remember as a, as a boy and then as a young man reading the story over and over again and kind of imagining I'm in their, their shoes or really their sandals. And I, I thought about what it was like for them to, to be taken away from their country to a far distant land and, and then to be given the privilege of being raised up to be leaders within Babylonian society. And they're, they're, they're living at the palace and eating the king's food, you know. And they're being groomed. And, and then they eventually are given a place of honor and distinction and position. And then came the surprise edict of the king, which said that everyone must bow to him and everyone must worship him. And as followers of God, they knew they really couldn't do that. And that, is, that was uh, incompatible with their faith. And so, let's read Daniel 3 together. Because it, it really says some powerful things. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. Set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then he summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he'd set up. So, 
the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image. The king Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and people, of, uh, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down. You must worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. And when the music played, it says that all the people bowed down. Every nation and tribe and language that was represented there, which is every nation they had conquered, they brought other exiles to Babylon, and all of them bowed down. And so masses of people, multitudes of people, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of people, bowed down to the image and to Nebuchadnezzar and to his gods. Except for these three brave young men. Now skip down to verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So here's the most powerful man on earth commanding them to bow down to his image, but they chose rather to obey God. And notice how they even answered the king. God will save us. But even if he does not, we will not bow down. This week we also read about Stephen, another young believer. He lived in the first century. He was one of the early disciples of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 6, we read about Stephen and, and six other men who were chosen to help the apostles lead the church, serve tables, and take care of the, the, the widows in the church. And shortly after that, we find out that Stephen begins preaching in Jerusalem and, and testifying to his faith that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Savior of the world. And the Jews begin debating with him day after day. And soon he is brought before the Jewish council to face charges that he's speaking against the temple and the law of Moses. In Acts 7, we read his defense, which was basically a history lesson of the Jewish nation, all the way from Abraham and the patriarchs down through Moses and David and to the prophets of the Old Testament, and eventually even right down to the coming of Jesus. And then he turned the charge over on them, and he charged this Jewish council with betraying and murdering the Son of God. Look with me over into Acts chapter 7 and verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. 
Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He became Paul, of course. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. All of these young men, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Stephen, were willing to sacrifice their very lives if that is what God wanted them to do. They boldly took their stand for God because they had already surrendered to His will. The next step was logical. The next step was reasonable. It was just what they would do, whatever God wanted them to do. There was no question that they would live for Him because they had already decided that they would die for Him if that was required. Paul speaks of our sacrifice in our key verse for today. It's in Romans 12, verse 1. He said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. See, according to Paul, he writes Romans 12.1, worship is not an event. Worship isn't something you do on one hour on Sunday morning. Worship is a sacrificial life. True worship is when a person surrenders himself or herself to whatever God wants. That's worship. And Paul says that our worship is found in presenting our bodies to God as living sacrifice. What, what an idea. And we knew about the Jewish system. We knew that for hundreds of years they took an animal, a, a goat or a ram or a bull, and, and they sacrificed this perfect animal. As an act of worship for God. They killed the animal. They got rid of parts of it and they put the rest of it on the altar. But Paul says that our worship in Christianity is that we're to be living sacrifice. We're supposed to keep on living. And as many people have said, there's a problem with living sacrifices. They keep crawling off the altar. That's the problem with the living sacrifice here because in a, in a dead sacrifice, the choice is made, it's done. But in a living sacrifice, that choice has to be made over and over again, every day. Every morning, we get up again and we say, I'm a living sacrifice for you, Lord. My life is yours. My life is in your hands, we sang this morning. And many of us don't seem to understand the depth and the seriousness and really the severity of the commitment we have made to follow Jesus Christ. But Jesus made it clear over and over again, didn't he? Jesus laid it out there on the line. He said, this is what it means to follow me. This is what it means to be my disciple. In Luke 9, 23-26, we read, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the glory, in his glory, and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Following Jesus is denying ourselves and whatever we want. And then taking up our cross daily to follow where we would lead us. Following Jesus is losing our lives so that we may save them for eternity by His grace. 
following Jesus is deciding not to gain the whole world. You know, that, that's what people are trying to do. Gain the whole world. But then in the process, they lose their very selves. Jesus said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will in fact save it. In a word, following Jesus is surrender. Surrender. What does it mean to surrender to Jesus? Because we surrender to whatever Jesus wants, whatever Jesus' plans may be for your life or mine. Well, it means several things, but let me just point out four things really quickly. You might want to write them down. It means, first of all, that we offer every moment, every thought, every activity of our lives to Him as a sacrifice. Everything. Everything we ever think, everything that, that may cross our mind, every activity that we might decide to be part of. It's a sacrifice. It means that we let Jesus take the lead and that we just follow Him. We don't know what the future is going to hold, but we do know that the Lord will be with us. So we, we listen to God's voice, we turn away from everything that's counter to His will, and we just follow Him. Next step, next step, next step. Follow Him implicitly. Follow Him completely. It means also that we wait for God's timing. That's really hard to do, isn't it? God may not act as quickly as we want Him to, but He's never late. He's always on time. And so instead of taking matters into our own hands when we're seeking something, we're praying for something, we're hoping for something, we wait for God's timing. Really hard to do. But when you're sacrificing to Jesus, you're surrendering to Jesus, then you do that because He's in charge, not you, not me. Thirdly, it means that we trust in His promises. If He has said it, He's good for it. We believe that. Because God always keeps His promises. As He promised, He sent His Son into the world to pay the penalty for our sins. But it took a long time for Jesus to come. As God promised, He will always be with us and He will help us face the challenges of life. As God promised, Jesus is going to come again and He will be Lord and Savior to all those who believe in Him. Nothing we ever will face is greater than God. For greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world. No one can thwart God's plans. And everything He has promised, He will keep. He will do. He will perform. And then finally, surrendering to Jesus means that we just need to serve Him in any way that God desires. We will go wherever He sends. We will do whatever He says to do. Because Jesus is Lord, not you, not me. Now I have something I want us to, to do as a little uh, activity. It's an illustration this morning. Now, how about if we have some of you guys get up from this table? How about you three guys? Arthur, come up here. Help me hold this out a little bit. Just keep unwinding it. Work it across the room there, if you will, please. Keep going. I know it wants to tangle up. Now, I want you to think of something for a minute. I want you to think of this air hose. I didn't have a rope this long, so I brought my air hose. I want you to think of this as your life. Okay? I want you to think of this whole thing, this is your life. Go on down the, the hallway there, or the, the side there. Nathan, please. Hold it up about this high, guys, so everybody can see it. This, this is your life. And really, this isn't just this long. It looks pretty long, but it's not just this. Your life is going to go on, isn't it? Because you are an eternal soul. And so, if we could... We'd wrap it around the room, then we go around the room again, then we go 
Well, let's let's take in the whole world because there's no end to this this length, to this line, to this length of life. No end at all. In fact, it would wrap on around the world to go for millions and millions of miles and still we hadn't reached the end of it. That's the reality of our life. If we are an eternal soul, then this is our life and it really has no end whatsoever. This little part on the end, this blue taped part, is our earthly life. That's it. Because in comparison to eternity, this is how long we are here on earth. It might be 40 years, it might be 60, it might be 80, it might even be 100 years, but it's still a very, very short time compared to that because it is time, the rest of it is no time. But you think about this for a minute because this is the reality of our lives. We spend all of our thought, all of our energy, all of our resources on this little blue part, don't we? And very little thought is given to the rest of it. We may give it a little nod every once in a while. Say, oh, I thank you, God, that you're saving me. I thank you that I'll be with you in heaven one day because of what Jesus did. He paid the penalty for my sins. We kind of give that little nod. But then in a day-to-day life, we're living for this. How ridiculous is that? How short-sighted is that? For us to think this is our life. When the reality is that life is going to go on forever. And the Bible says that what we do in this space affects the rest. Determines the rest, if you want to look at it that way. The choices we make in this little space of time decides how we will spend the rest of this. And it's going to go on and on and on forever. And not only does this affect our lives, but what we do in this little space of time affects the people around us. And if we make the foolish mistake of investing our thought, our energy, our resources only in this piece, we have made a very grave mistake, haven't we? Affecting not only us, but everyone around us. Think about that, would you please? Thank you guys, you can be seated. Just leave it on the floor if you like. 1903, a bright young man named William Borden graduated from high school. He's already a millionaire. He was the heir to the Borden Dairy Fortune, a massive nationwide business in those days. Following graduation, his parents gave him this graduation gift of high school to travel around the world for weeks. Imagine that. And everywhere he went, he was touched by the needs of people in those countries that he visited. He saw people that were starving. He saw people that were just just trying desperately to stay alive one more day. And he eventually wrote to his parents to announce that he was going to give up his fortune. He's going to deny his fortune. And he was going to devote his life to missionary service. They had a hard time accepting that. And in his Bible, he wrote two words. No reserves. Right there, cover of his Bible, no reserves. After enrolling in Yale in 1905, William quickly became the spiritual leader of the whole entire campus. There were about 1,300 students. And he got about a thousand of those students involved in weekly Bible fellowships and and going off campus and inner city ministry and other things. He's a student 
but it just devoted to, to you know, serving God and helping people. And upon graduating from Yale, he was given several lucrative job offers, but he rejected them, and he repeated his intention to become a missionary. He went to Princeton Seminary, and he soon graduated. And upon receiving his ministerial degree, he decided that he was going to go to China. And on the way to China, he needed to stop and, and increase his, his understandings of Arabic and, and Islam because the people he was going to try and minister to, uh, he would, would do better if he did that. So he made a, a one-way trip to Egypt where he would learn Arabic, and he would study Islam and prepare himself for what God was calling him to do. Leaving his fortune behind, he set sail, and on the way, he wrote two more words in his Bible. No retreats. He arrived in Egypt full of anticipation, and immersed himself in the tasks at hand. But within days of his arrival, he became very weak, very sick, and he was soon diagnosed with spinal meningitis. And a short time later, William Whiting Borden died at the age of 25. Human logic will never understand his death. And yet, an ocean away, hundreds of young people were impacted because of his joyful, willing sacrifice. And they, too, surrendered their lives in service to Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that's the way William Borden would have wanted it. They discovered that during these last fleeting days of his life, in labored handwriting, he had penned two more words inside the cover of his Bible. No regrets. No reserves. No retreats. No regrets. So what is your next step this morning? What is my next step? I suggest that our next step is total surrender. Nothing less. And what is God asking you to surrender to? What have you not surrendered to? On your table today, or maybe you don't have one and we can get it to you, we've got guys stationed ready to do that, is this little slip of paper like this. Please take one. I want everyone in the room to please have one in your hand. Get a pen in your hand too. Uh, you're going to need it in a minute. I want you to get the piece of paper. Everybody have one? You need one? All right. There you go. Everybody? Just hold it up so I know you got it. If not, uh, okay. Don't want anybody to miss this. Please. Thank you. Let's read it together. Just the one side of it. Jesus, you surrendered it all when you came to earth to be our Savior. You gave it all. Help me now as I take this step to surrender. And we're going to fill that blank in. The reason I'm giving you two copies of it is because I want you to fill out one of those to give to God. I want you to keep the other one so you remember what you said. Because <laughs> I know we'll forget this. Maybe you need to keep it in front of me. Maybe you need to tape it to a mirror at home or somewhere where you'll, you'll notice it. And what we're going to ask you to do in just a few minutes is come up and, and, and lay this before God on either side here in front of these screens that are up here. And just do it as an act of, of worship to God. This is what I'm surrendering. What is it that God wants you to surrender today? Write it down. Where have you been resisting Him? You know, you just... You know, you, you've just been saying, no, I'm not, I'm not going to. I, that's uncomfortable for me. That's, that's dangerous. That's, that's something I don't want to do. What is it? Where are you holding on when you should be letting go? Where are you trying to keep control when you should be surrendering? <clears throat> you know, I thought about this and I thought, 
I don't want to be a hero Onada, resisting surrender for 30 years. You know, I've seen Christians do that for 30 years, say no to God. I don't want to be that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego held nothing back. They obeyed God. Stephen willingly gave his life so that people could know the truth about Jesus. They all surrendered everything. What about you and me? So would you please write down what God wants you to surrender? And you may need to take another minute. I want to pray. After you've written it down, both sides, tear it in half. And in a moment, we're going to sing a song. You can come up and you just lay it down before God, either side here at the screens, and then return to your seat. If you're not yet a Christian, you're not yet a follower of Christ, maybe the thing you need to write on this piece of paper is yourself. You're, just put, my life. I'm surrendering me. If you've never done that, I want to invite you to just write down my life or me and bring it up front and lay it before the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time uh, when we can honestly think about our lives. We can honestly admit to you and to ourselves where we have resisted you, where we have not fully surrendered to you. Maybe that's a big thing. Maybe it's something that we've put off. We knew it was there, but we just put it off for a long time. Maybe it's a small thing, but it's this little hurdle that just keeps getting in the way and tripping us up. And today you want us to lay it down before you. Surrender completely to you. Lord, in our, in our honesty, in this moment of humility, we admit what we yet need to surrender to you. And we bring it before you as our act of worship, our true and proper worship is surrender. Lord, we want to be living sacrifices. Help us now. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. As we sing this song together, would you just come up and lay these before the Lord?